Okay. Well, again, good morning. Uh, we're going to continue our study in the book of James this morning. This is week two out of uh, many, or at least several. I don't know what the uh, right adjective is there, or adverb, or whatever. Adjective, sorry. Um, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. You can turn there in your Bible or look in your worship folder. That's where we're going to be. And so I'd invite you to stand with me as we read God's word this morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are present with us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it is. And we ask, Lord, that you would, again, soften our hearts, open our eyes, that we might receive the message you have for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is God's inspired word for us this morning, so please be seated. Now last week as we began our study in the book of James, we talked about the idea that the book of James is not written and should not be thought of as the way to earn life with God, but really it's a picture of what life with God can look like. Right? This is a way of living life with God. He's answering the question, after we have trusted in Jesus' work for us, so that means his life and his death and his resurrection, what does the life of following Jesus look like? And, and that's a distinction that we're going to make probably each and every week that we talk about James because um, it's really easy to get confused. You know, the problem is that all of us want to believe something along the lines of, you know, that salvation is my doing. That, that I at least bring something to the equation here. You know, in this world, nobody gets anything for nothing. And so I've got to be able to bring something to God, right? And so in a way, each of us is right there with those first century Jewish leaders and also those modern prosperity gospel preachers who are all really saying the same thing, which is that, that we can earn God's blessing. And if we don't have his blessing, then we just haven't earned it yet. That, that's, that's one of the, 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 the errors that we can make as we talk about this is the way of God. Now, there's another error we can make as well, which is to say that, you know, we just have to do this and not think about it. It's kind of like the girl, you, you may have heard about her, she went off to school, and she was really excited to share with her friends this recipe that, that mom had always made, her famous Christmas ham recipe. You heard about her, I think. 
You know, and so what she would do is, is she called up mom because she couldn't quite remember the recipe and, and said, Mom, how do I make that again? She said, well, the first thing you do is you cut off the end of the ham. And she goes, well, that doesn't make any sense at all, right? If, if I cut off the end, isn't that just going to, like, dry it out faster? And, and you know, it, I, I know it always tastes good, but are you sure that's what you do? And, and she says, yeah, I, I'm absolutely sure that's the way my mother always did it. And so then... She gets off the phone with mom and she calls grandma and says, hey, grandma, you know, I'm not quite sure. Is this the way that you make the ham? She said, absolutely. You got to cut the end off first. And she said, why do we do that? She said, well, I don't know. That's the way that my mother always did it. And then she gets home from school and she goes and visits Nana in the nursing home and says, Nana, I I talked to mom. I talked to grandma. Both of them are telling me to cut off the end of the ham. Why do we do it that way? And she said, well, I always did it that way because I never had a pan big enough to fit the whole ham. And I always wished I had one big enough, right? And so there's this error that we can get into that we're just doing this just to do this, just because it says to do this, and that's not the way of Jesus, right? This is giving us a picture of following Jesus, but there's a heart behind it as well. So as we consider the way of Jesus, remember that the only thing that we bring to God's table is our sinfulness our helplessness, and our brokenness. That's it. And and then Jesus says this amazing thing, my life for yours. What do I have to offer him? Nothing. We we could end all right now and just go to the table. But that's what he does for us. And so James had actually opened his letter by saying that the the, the, the way of Jesus is the way of the servant. Right, following in the way of the true servant as he calls us to participate in the life of God's family. And, and this, again, this is not a harsh demand for mindless servitude. He's not saying do this and don't think about it, but this is an invitation to true life with God. You know, life in the way of Jesus, this is a privilege. It's not a straitjacket. And so it's no surprise that James, after his tiny introduction, begins with his body of text with these famous words, count it all joy. How many of you are familiar with that phrase, count it all joy? Doesn't that just sound so uplifting and wonderful? Consider it joy. It sounds great until what? Until you read the rest of the sentence, right? When you meet trials of various kinds. Now, to, to paraphrase one commenter, it's like, it's like we're, we're getting a letter from Pastor Wacko. Okay, and, it, and it's like he's saying, hey there, you sir, are you suffering? Yes? Good! Hallelujah! Praise God! Can I get an amen? Right? Can you imagine what it would be like to sit there in the audience as you're hearing this letter from James thinking, oh, how wonderful, let's just rejoice in our suffering. Right, let's just praise God because I've got a pain and I'm just going to praise God for the pain. What a nut job. And a lot of us think that as we hear this because we go, there's no way, there's nobody that likes to suffer. Right? Does anyone like to suffer? I didn't see a single hand. And James knows that. Remember, he doesn't say that to count it all joy if you suffer. Right? It's a count it all joy when You face trials of many kinds. And and James' original audience, remember that he's he's writing this letter to people who lived in the first century. The most Jewish letter in the New Testament. These primarily are made of converted Jews who became Christians. And they were very familiar with suffering. 
If you know anything about history, you'll know that Jews have been probably the most persecuted people in the history of the world. I mean, just think back through it. You have the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and the Muslims and the Turks and the Catholics and the Nazis and the Russians and the Protestants. And who, you know, the list goes on and on. These are people that have been historically hated throughout the world. And so if being a Jew wasn't bad enough, these were people that were seen as heretical Jews. And so in the first century, to be a Christian was like to be a Jew, but a really bad Jew. They were seen as a a faction. So Jewish converts not only were hated by the Romans, but they were hated by other Jewish people, by their own neighbors and family members and friends. And then over the next three centuries, suffering would be the experience of the church, not the exception. For every follower of Jesus, the church was born out of suffering right from the very beginning, from the execution of Jesus. And we can even think back to the execution of John the Baptist and the execution of Stephen and then of James, the brother of John, and then so many others. For 300 years, there's just persecution and suffering and persecution and more suffering for every follower of Jesus. It wasn't until 313 in the Edict of Milan that Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity as one of the authorized religions within the pantheistic system that was the Roman Empire. And until then, the followers of Jesus were seen as dangerous and crazy cult members who were undermining the fabric of Roman society. But you know the really crazy thing about all that? All the evidence that we have shows that the church did not thrive and grow in spite of periods of suffering and persecution, but it thrived and grew because of periods of suffering and persecution. See, every Christian who suffered for their faith was another living testimony of the transformative power of Jesus. Remember, it wasn't just Christians that suffered. Everybody suffered. Life was terrible. Can you imagine life without a microwave? Or television or Netflix or YouTube. I mean, all of these things. Life was hard and it was bad. And you know what? Eventually you died. And for these people, they died a lot younger than we do now. But life for a Christian was different. See, their joy was not diminished as they suffered. In fact, for many of them, their joy increased along with their suffering. So naturally, people want to know, how are those people enduring so much and still have joy? Now, why don't they just get with the program and ditch this whole Jesus thing that they've got going on and make life just a little bit easier for themselves because life is so darn hard already? And James's answer is that trial and suffering bring us closer to Jesus. See, what James is saying about finding joy in trials and testings of life, it's, it's almost counterintuitive, but as we think about it, it's not really. right? Um, if you've ever been to the gym, you know all the cliches, don't you? Like, no pain, no gain, no guts, no glory. Um, what's another one? Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Those sound beautiful, and they make so much sense when we're, when we're in there, we're sweating, and then it hurts, and we go, ooh, that's a good burn. Have you ever said that? Like, what is a good pain, anyways? But faith isn't a cliche, and we're not just filling the sanctuary here with cat posters, Right? So Theodore Roosevelt said this. He said, nothing in the world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort, pain, and difficulty. 
He said this amazing thing. He said, I've never in my life envied a human being who led an easy life. I have envied a great many people who led difficult lives and led them well. See, what what God does is he uses the trials and tests of life to bring us to the end of ourselves and right to the feet of the cross of Jesus. And that's where we find this joy that can never be taken away from us. And and it doesn't mean that we're always going to understand what God's doing. And it doesn't mean that we're always going to agree with what God is doing. John Calvin wrote that every trial produces in us grief and sorrow. And and so don't hear us saying this morning that that when you suffer, just suck it up and move on. I love to say that to people. That's what I say to my kids all the time. Get up, brush it off, rub some dirt in it, keep going. That's not what James is saying. He's not saying ignore it, ignore the pain. In fact, it's, it's a lot more damaging not to grieve to ignore the pain and to close ourselves off to our emotions, isn't it? That's, that's not a Christian response. That's the head-in-the-sand ostrich response to pain. See, the Bible actually commands us, tells us to mourn with those who mourn. That God is near to the brokenhearted, that, that Jesus was deeply troubled in his spirit, and he was so overcome with emotion, seeing the pain of his friends, that he cries out in anguish, at the tomb of Lazarus just moments before he raises him back to life. So don't just ignore your pain. Because we're all going to face, it says various trials. That that word there, various, means complex, intricate, diversified, many-colored, basically everything. Right? That we are going to go through every trial of life, and all of us will experience that. Nobody is immune. Jeremiah is a man in the Old Testament. He's known as the weeping prophet. Because the Lord showed him what was going to happen to his people. This this devastation that was going to come to Israel because they had believed, said they believed in God, but really their hearts were far from God. And so they followed the law of God, but then they also committed the spiritual adultery by also worshiping these, these different other gods. And if you follow along with us in the central office, and that's our um, da- daily Bible reading plan, just this last week we read Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and, and, and this is Jeremiah's complaint to God. So let me read this for you. He says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them, and they take root, they grow, and they produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far in their heart. But you, Lord, know me. You see me, and you test my heart towards you. So Jeremiah is coming to God in his pain and his anguish, and he's saying, God, why is it that these people who you know their heart, right? why is it that they prosper for doing evil, and yet I'm suffering? These are people who say that they know God, and really they're just frauds. They're pretending, they're they're religious fakes. And yet they're enjoying prosperity and and they're they're living this, what we would call, you know, like the hashtag blessed life. That's them. And Jeremiah's crying out to God and saying, God, why are you letting this happen? You know their hearts. There's nothing that's hidden from you. You're not fooled by their outward expressions of religiosity. Right? And do you know how God responds? It's sort of amazing. 
This is what he tells Jeremiah in verse 5. He says, If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan wilderness? You may be hearing that and go, what the heck did he just say? Right? Here's, here's the translation. God says, I'm not ignorant. But if these jokers are wearing you out because they're so sinful, just wait. Right? Because I'm about to bring in a sinful people that you can't even comprehend how sinful they are. And if you think that, that, that your life is difficult now, you just wait. Because I'm going to show you how life, how hard life is going to get. See, here's the truth. God says that their success is about to expire. The the prosperity that you see is going to vanish in a moment, and they are going to suffer so badly that you are going to be weeping for them because of how hard life is going to be. There's going to be shame and pain and suffering and sorrow, the likes of which the world has never seen before. And you're going to be my witness. Now, that doesn't bring us a lot of joy, necessarily, does it? But what God is saying is that in this time right now, I'm testing you and I'm preparing you because what you're going to see is going to be worse. That that right now, you are being made stronger in this period because what's going to happen next is going to push you even further. And what we find about Christian joy in Scripture is that it is not a temporary thing. And James is saying that joy comes from steadfastness, which is staying power, toughness. This is heroic endurance and patience and constancy and perseverance. You know, in a world that avoids pain at all costs, be weary of those who have not been tested and endured. Remember the oyster, that, which is that a pearl is just a picture of the victory over irritation inside of that oyster. One commentator says that the trials and suffering and testing are not a sign of God's displeasure, but these are just opportunities to persevere in the Lord. And so how do we get to that place in our life? How do we look at at these trials and tests and think, gosh, I'm just glad, Lord, that you gave me that opportunity to persevere. I'm so glad that you gave me the opportunity to grow in my faith and grow in wisdom. What's that in times of trial and testing, we turn to God and we seek his wisdom. No, no, what is wisdom? Wisdom isn't just knowledge or information. You know, we live in this information age. We have this insatiable thirst for knowledge. So many of us go to bed at night and wake up in the morning, and what do we do? The first thing that we do is we search for any information that we didn't have previously. Right? We do this in social media, we do this on news, we do this in sports, anything. I want to know everything right now, all the time. We live in the most informed time in the history of the world. It's crazy. You've probably heard it said that you know, we have more computing power in the iPhone than sent men to the moon. The truth is that there's more power, there's more RAM in the latest Apple Watch than there was on the Apollo. Like a million times more. We have so much information, we have so much knowledge, and yet are we living in an age of wisdom? A lot of you are just immediately shaking your heads, there's no way. Despite all the information that we have, we're probably the most anxious, most lonely, most depressed, most stressed, most afraid people who have ever walked the planet. Our work physically has never been easier than it is right now. 
And yet so many of us are constantly looking for things to numb our pain, to avoid dealing with, with hurt and trauma in our lives all the time. See, if knowledge is power and we have all the knowledge, why does it feel that we're so powerless? See, in James's day, the Jewish religious leaders, they had this sort of exclusive claim on the knowledge of God. They knew the books of Moses backwards and forwards. They devoted the best years of their lives to studying and teaching not only the Torah, but also the Mishnah. They had these laws and then the, the laws around the laws, and they kept everything seemingly perfectly. If there was a question about God, they would either give you an answer or they would debate that answer for days and weeks and years. And what did that knowledge produce in them? A dead religion. Jesus said of the Pharisees that these are just people that are full of dead bones. So they took the knowledge of God, which was supposed to point the way to life, and they bludgeoned God's people with it. And there's, no, there's nothing that's more tragic or more evil than weaponizing the word of God to allow ourselves to feel superior to other people. And that didn't just happen with the Pharisees. In 1807, there's a group called the Society for the the Conversion of Negro Slaves, which produced something called the Slave Bible. Have you heard of the Slave Bible before? Like one person, okay. And this Slave Bible was supposed to be used in evangelistic effort for African slaves, for reaching them, for Jesus. But the name Bible really is a little bit misleading. Because what it really was was a collection of parts of the Bible that had a lot of things left out of it. Like any reference towards freedom, any mention of the exodus, anything that talked about equality or or oneness in Christ was gone. The story of Joseph's slavery in Egypt was there, but the book of Exodus wasn't. The Ten Commandments were there. Anything that they thought would help the slaves to be better slaves and not to put up any sort of a fight or rebellion was there. Uh, Anthony Schmidt, who's a curator at the Museum of the Bible in D.C., said that really all it did was highlight portions of the Bible that would instill obedience in slaves. So you see, you see how we can take the knowledge of God and twist it to do something that we want it to do? So the makers of the Bible thought that if the slaves had read the, those parts of Scripture that, that told them to be obedient and accept, them, accept their lot in life, that they would just be easier slaves less likely to rebel. And so we're thinking, you know, that's terrible. I would never use the scriptures like that to make people inferior or less than me. And yet the sad fact is that a lot of us do it quite frequently. You know, we take what little knowledge of the Bible we have and we take any verse, we pull it out of context to say exactly what we want it to say, regardless of what the rest of scripture says. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is information, and wisdom is knowing how to properly apply it to our lives. And as we read before, wisdom is not just the knowledge about God, but as we saw, wisdom is actually the fear of God. See, fear means awe and love and respect, humility, knowing our place before the eternal, infinite King, knowing that everything and everyone belongs to God, And that everyone who does belong to him, who has trusted in Jesus, will live forever. See, that's wisdom. And that everyone who does not trust in him will perish. That's what scripture tells us. 
And yet the message of so many of us Christians uh, included, right, I'm including myself, is not that, you know, come and find a place in the kingdom. We, we often don't come across that way when we speak to other people. But oftentimes the message is, hey, you don't belong here. This is my place. It's easy to be like that rich man who rejoices in his wealth, not realizing that wealth was a responsibility that he would steward instead of something to be kept to himself. See, if we're God's family, we don't just rejoice in who we are or what we have. We rejoice in the fact that he is the one who has made us into anything. Right? That it's because of who he is and what he has done that we can be anything, even servants and children in the family of God. And that, that's our message to the world is that I am nothing, but he is everything. And he can be your everything too. See, the gospel isn't just the gospel for us. The gospel is the gospel for all. It's not just for those who have everything or those who have it all together. The gospel is the gospel for those who know that the only reason they come to God is because God first came to us. You know, Megan just sang this just a moment ago. She said, saying, Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, When these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secure. And the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. See, that's the way, that's that's finding the joy in the way of Jesus, that the calm will be the better for the the storms that we endure. It's not laughing like a lunatic in the face of the storm, right? but looking beyond it and above it to the one who made the wind and the waves, believing that he has power over every square inch of this universe and every nanosecond of time. And see, faith is a steadfast belief in the character of God beyond our circumstances, knowing that that God calls himself merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Those are the attributes that he tells us he is. That's his heart for us. And so followers of Jesus can cling to the goodness of Jesus despite all evidence to the contrary in their lives right now. And we can look here to this table tonight, this morning, sorry, where God used the greatest tragedy in the history of the world to bring about the deepest joy that we will ever know. Why don't you pray with me? Father God, you are a good and gracious Father. Lord, it's so good that you are doing things for us and in us in the midst of our circumstances that, that all things, Lord, Lord you, you said it and we believe it, that, that all things you are working together for the good of those who love you. But God, we know that all the things in our lives don't feel very good right now. And so Father, we pray that you would be softening us. Yeah, that we might have a big, bigger vision of what you're doing. Lord, a bigger vision of who you are. Lord, a bigger vision of what it means to be a follower of Jesus.